This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Hi, and welcome to Season 3 of Office Hours. We're approaching 100,000 downloads, so we want to say thank you to everyone who has listened to the program. If you benefit from the show, keep listening. Tell your friends and like us on Facebook or leave a rating on iTunes. On behalf of everyone associated with Office Hours, let me say thank you for listening. We kick off Season 3 with another episode of Ask the Profs, where you ask the questions at 760-480-8477, and the faculty gives the answers. Thanks to Jim, Joseph, Mark, Ray, and Joel for calling Office Hours at 760-480-8477. They will each be receiving a copy of Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey. As always, available through... The bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Our first call comes from Jim in Gibsonville, North Carolina. I recently read blog posts on the topic of subjective non-confessional piety. That interested me because I came to a more reformed understanding of the Christian faith, but I've gradually found myself more and more attracted to the writings of Michael Horton, Daryl Hart, and yourself. All I have known as a Christian is this inward-focused experiential piety. Could you point me to some positive examples of the kind of confessional reformed piety you would espouse or practice? Thanks, Jim. Here to answer that question is Dr. Michael Horton, J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. Well, that's a very good and important question. First of all, the first thing to say at the outset is that Reformed theology does not force you to choose between the head and the heart. That's the first thing that's important to say. There is a place for subjectivity. There is a place for introspection. There is a place for self-examination. There is a place for being concerned about your growth in sanctification. But the order is is different than it is typically in much of evangelicalism. You have to understand that much of evangelicalism is heir more to the stream of Anabaptism and Pietism than it is to the Reformation traditions. Now, both of those tributaries flow into the evangelical movement, uh, which is why it's sometimes confusing to be in evangelicalism, because you hear different emphases that are frankly contradictory. Reformation piety, particularly Reformed piety, begins with something external. Uh, It is an external word that comes to us. It is not a word that wells up within us that saves us. It is a word, particularly the gospel, that comes to us from outside of ourselves. I love that line in the Westminster Larger Catechism that says that the the Holy Spirit blesses the preached word especially as a means of grace because through it the Spirit drives us out of ourselves to cling to Christ. Now here's what happens when you reverse the order. If you have a piety that starts with the inside and works out, you basically end up with a kind of uh, romanticism. This is what happened in Protestant liberalism, not that all pietists are Protestant liberals by any stretch of the imagination, but Protestant liberalism kind of worked it out 
to the, the logical conclusion that basically revelation is something that wells up within all sensitive hearts of pious souls. And then it's expressed in words. And so, for instance, the Bible is not an external word coming from God. It's an internal word expressed in the thoughts and words of human beings, and particularly the religious community. Well, you know, what's great in Reformed piety is you get both. You know, it's only that you get justification and sanctification, you also get the objective and the subjective. But if you start with the subjective, you not only lose the objective, you really lose any kind of subjective hope. Because my only confidence in my Christian experience, in all the ups and downs of that experience, is that God has done something for me in his Son 2,000 years ago in history, with a cross planted in the middle of history and an empty tomb, God has taken care of my problem. And that's something that I don't know intuitively. It's not something that I know deep within. It's not something I'm going to know better if I go off to an ashram or a retreat center and pray and contemplate and climb the ladder of mystical ascent. It's something that I have to, first of all, hear announced from the lips of a messenger. It's something that I have to have ratified for me visibly and publicly in the sacraments. And then I experience it. C.S. Lewis once said that uh, all true and genuine and lasting experience is always an experiencing of someone or something other than the experience itself. In other words, what he's saying is you need an object. You need something outside of you to love. You need something outside of you that loves you or who loves you. You need someone outside of you to tell you something that you didn't know before in order for you to have a new experience. And so we're not against experience. We're not against subjectivity. We're, we're against experientialism and subjectivism. You need to find an object outside of yourself. As my friend Rod Rosenblatt always says, we're like miners. The deeper we go, the dirtier we get. Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked above everything else. It's an idol factory. We've got to get outside of ourselves and hear that external word, cling to an external Savior, and then we find that he's not just standing outside of us, but by his Spirit, he unites us to Christ inwardly and deeply. The Spirit indwells us, and we're conformed to the image of his Son. You get all of that in the bargain. If you start with the objective, if you start with the subjective, all you get is basically talking to yourself in pious tones. Do you have a favorite author who gets this right? John Calvin. <laughs> Can you narrow it down? Uh, uh, John. <laughs> How about book three of the Institutes, which is reprinted as the golden book of the Christian life? Yeah, it's good to read book two also to get, a, you know, Calvin grounds the Christian life in the mediation of Christ. And Christ is both God and man. And the Holy Spirit is a real person, not just a force. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in Calvin's treatment. Certainly that distilled version of book three on the Christian life is important. I think there are lots of great resources out there. John Owen, Sin and Temptation. I think of uh, the treatment of John Murray in Principles of Conduct, which is about ethics, but he really talks about the relationship of of the third use, what we call the third use of the law. There's a fine little treatment, the title of which is The Pearl of Christian Comfort uh, by Petrus Dethanus. Don't let that put you off. It's in English. It's, it's brief. It's Wonderful little book. Very simple. Easy to read, well worth having, and available through the bookstore <laughs> at Westminster Seminary, California. I pass that book out like popcorn. It is really, really soul 
edifying. As I'm sure you'll agree, Scott, the uh, confessions are a great place to start, and they're often overlooked. People will say, you know, I, I'm looking for a good book on sanctification, or I'm looking for some some brief statement of how you Reformed characters look at the relationship between the gospel and the Christian life. Easy to overlook the confessions. They were written to provide exactly what people are looking for. And there are great sections in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms and in the Three Forms of Unity, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, especially the Heidelberg Catechism. Great treatment in the third part of the Catechism on the relationship between the gospel and the Christian life. Part of this here, Scott, is that we never get away from the objective. It's not that we have the objective work of Christ in the beginning to look to for justification, and then we turn inward in sanctification. It's that the the only power we have, Paul calls the gospel the power of God unto salvation, and that includes sanctification. The only power or motivation we have, either in justification or in sanctification, living out the Christian life, is the gospel. And so that objective work of Christ is always held out before us throughout our earthly pilgrimage. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Our next call comes from Joseph in Quebec. Uh, Recently, uh, one of my pastors said in a sermon that the knowledge of the original biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew, are not a qualification for ordained ministry. Thanks, Joseph. That's a good question that touches on Westminster Confession, chapter 1-8, and also the importance of biblical languages for ministry in general. And here to answer the question is Dr. Brian Estelle, Associate Professor of Old Testament here at Westminster Seminary, California. The reason we study the biblical languages at Westminster Seminary in California, and of course why we're teaching here is so that we can prepare ordinance people who are on a track to that most noble office of minister where they'll be participating in administering the means of grace and especially in preaching God's word is because it's absolutely necessary to plumb into the languages in order to understand the text and make it clear for people. Of course, folk that only have English translations can grab a real sense of the language and we don't want to make it sound as if they can't unless they go through a rigorous study of Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Those are the languages in which God's Word has been revealed. But I tell the students and I tell prospective ministers that I go at this by asking questions. For example, you you wouldn't want to watch a black and white TV when you could actually watch it in color. Uh, You wouldn't want to uh, be able to just see a rose and not smell the rose. Well, when we study the languages, that allows us to see things that we wouldn't see otherwise. But even more importantly than that, and especially for the sake of ordained ministers, it allows them to have the ability to recognize mistakes and probably prevents them from making many mistakes themselves. Uh, That could be all the way down to the level of the word, the level of a phrase, or the level of a whole sense section, a a pericope, we call it. Lasor, who used to teach up at Fuller Seminary, has a great argument for studying the biblical languages. He says, you don't want to just be an intellectual parrot, do you? So people that aren't able to at least 
least have the facility to weigh arguments in the commentaries, they end up to some degree being in a position where they're enslaved to repeat opinions and become a kind of intellectual parrot. Years and years ago, the president of Westminster Seminary, J.G. Machen, made the argument that uh, we are going to be an institution that's going to train pastors and therefore specialists. You can go to other kinds of institutions in order to learn other kinds of specialties, but we are going to train specialists, namely specialists in the Bible. And of course, ultimately, he was about uh, wanting to form an institution that would train ministers. And if that's the case, then to the original languages we must go, he would say, meaning Greek and Hebrew primarily. And if you sit under the preaching of someone who is wrestling with the languages week in and week out in the same trajectory as that Renaissance ideal, which really became the bedrock of the Reformation, namely ad fontes, back to the sources. If you know your pastor has been wrestling with the languages, it makes a real difference in his preaching and in his teaching. Now, hopefully he doesn't import all that hard background homework into the pulpit. That can be deadly dull and put people to sleep. But nevertheless, if he's making intelligent arguments, he's not misstepping because he's aware of linguistic fallacies uh, when he's teaching. That can make a real difference in both the truth of what is being said and also in how it is said. For example, one of our colleagues, Dennis Johnson, years ago wrote an article when a number of curriculums were being rejigged around the country, and he was arguing for a more traditional view, namely preparation, hard preparation, and diligent preparation in the original languages. He said something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. When a pastor has wrestled through the original during the week in preparation for a sermon, he develops a kind of intimacy to the text that comes across indirectly to his congregation uh, when he's speaking to them on the Lord's Day. And in my own experience, that's been the case, uh, having been blessed with sitting under the preaching of of men who labor very assiduously throughout the week in the languages and then bring in an appropriate and apt way, not in a way that's going to scare people away from their own individual study of the Bible or make them so wowed by the intellectual prowess of the uh, pastor that they feel like they could never get that insight if they hadn't studied the original languages. But the pastor comes as a servant, and he brings that uh, knowledge and that intellectual research to bear on his message in such a way that it's edifying and uplifting and lucid and clear and, and ultimately is building up the saints and helping them to understand. So just because we think that the languages are essential for the proper administration of the Word of God, that does not uh, mean that we're trying to drive people away from their own individual study or make them feel alienated. Stephen Tracy has recently written an article in a book called Confident of Better Things. Essays commemorating 75 years of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And it's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Thank you, Scott. That's helpful. And I think that's an excellent article. It's an easy read. In fact, I liked it so much. Uh, Mr. Tracy, if he hears this, will be encouraged to, to know this, that I actually made a copy of it, included it in one of my class readers for this fall, basically to encourage the students that all this labor, this arduous labor involved in trying to gain a reading knowledge of the language is worth it, and it will translate into real edification for the congregation. For example, in there, he talks about Leon Morris's book. I believe it's The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, where Morris basically takes these 
key words of the Christian faith, if I remember correctly, propitiation, atonement, and that kind of thing, and talks about this Christian vocabulary, which for the average visitor, especially the unchurched visitor who comes into our congregations, will will not have any idea what these words mean. All that to say, it's important for the minister uh, bearing that office to be a servant of the knowledge of God's Word and unpack that Christian vocabulary in such a way that brings the audience and the congregation into a full-orbed knowledge of the rich connotations and nuances of these words. Well, the fact of the matter is, studying Greek and Hebrew— and Aramaic, if you want to make your way through the small portions of Aramaic and Daniel and Ezra, all serve that end, and it's very important in order to edify the congregation. Lastly, I would say, and I mentioned this briefly at the beginning of the discussion, one of the greatest benefits of studying the language is is the following. It saves you from making errors. I'm speaking about ministers now, ordained ministers. If you not only understand Hebrew and Greek, but you also have an understanding of how language works and functions, those skills will save you from making certain very facile mistakes that are commonly made out there, both in the literature and in radio preaching and such. And that is something we want to do. We uh, Shepherds of God's flock need to protect the flock from mistakes and errors. And many times those who have not submitted themselves to a, I would argue, a proper curriculum in order to become apt and able in the languages will find themselves stepping on all kinds of landmines that they wouldn't otherwise had they uh, submitted themselves to studying these languages and, and understanding how language works such that they can edify uh, God's people in a more rich and full-orbed and robust way from God's Word. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. The next question comes from Mark in Charlotte, North Carolina. My question has to do with the law and whether it is fair that God would require us commands of the law, knowing that we are incapable of doing so in our post-fall situation. Here to answer this question is Dr. David Vendrunen, professor of systematic theology here at Westminster Seminary, California. Well, that certainly is a a question that has uh, troubled some people and has caused uh, some people to doubt whether God, in fact, does continue to require perfect obedience to his law after the fall. It seems to me that probably the, the best initial way to get at this question is to remember that God created Adam upright. Uh, He made him capable of perfect obedience to his law. I think it'd be one thing if God had made Adam inherently sinful and inherently uh, not capable of doing the things that God had required him to do. It'd be be sort of like if God had made Adam with bodies like we have and required us to dunk a basketball to a rim that's 30 feet high. We just can't do it. But God made Adam upright, and it was Adam's sin, Adam's 
free choice that brought the curse of sin upon him. And so the simple answer is that we are incapable of keeping God's law perfectly now because of our own free choice to to become rebels against God. Now, just because we have made that free decision, it doesn't change the fact that God is a holy and uh, just God who is righteous in all his ways. God is not bound to change his standards because we, by our own free will, have decided to become rebels against him. God's under absolutely no obligation to change uh, what, what our requirements are before him. And so, for that reason, I think there's a good response to this question. But at the same time, uh, it seems to me that as we read Scripture— we're not encouraged to be speculating about sort of these, these, these theodicy kinds of questions, these questions about sin and evil, and you know, how do we understand the presence of evil in this world and our relation to it in light of the fact that God is just and sovereign. That where Scripture really points us is to God's solution to this. And so in the face of our rebellion and our inability to keep God's law, we're not meant to be questioning, well, why is it fair of God to continue to require this of us when he can't do it, but to look to Christ, that God in his mercy has provided one who actually has kept the law and has done it for us, and so that despite our disobedience, God has offered a, a way out. And I think it's wise for us to focus our attention and the proclamation of the gospel on that and to to not press overly uh, some of these more philosophical questions about evil and our relation and God's relation to it. Up next is Ray from St. Louis. My question has to do with church planting. How does Reformed and Confessional Theology bear upon the methodologies of church planting? Thanks, Ray. And to answer this question is Dr. Dennis Johnson, Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. The first thing you notice when you ask the question about methodology of church planting of the Reformed Confessions is that there's not a lot explicit in the confessions about that, but there are some very, very helpful perspectives that they offer. Uh, The first one, as the confessions so often say, is look at the Bible. The Bible is the ultimate norm for our faith and our practice. And uh, the Westminster Confession in the first chapter uh, lists the 66 books of the scriptures and then say that these are given by inspiration of God to be the only rule of faith and life. And they go on in uh, a following section of that chapter to talk about the fact that the whole counsel of God can concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So Scripture is our norm. Now, interestingly, the Confession also says that there are some circumstances pertaining to the worship of God, the government of the Church, that are common to human societies, and decisions on those matters need to be made in the light of the light of nature, the general revelation as now reflected in human understanding, Christian prudence, and the general rules of the Word. So even in our strategic decisions, the word is normative, maybe in a little different way than when it's telling us specifically the elements of worship, but it still has uh, normativity. Another thing I find interesting in that first chapter is their discussion of God's rationale in giving the Bible in the languages he did. They go on in the eighth section of the first chapter to talk about God giving the Old Testament in Hebrew because that was the language that the people of God of old spoke, and then Greek in the New Testament because that was the language most generally known among the nations. And then they go from that to say, first of all, the church needs to go back to the originals in deciding doctrinal issues, but also following God's lead, I think they're implying, we need to translate the Bible into the languages of the people. So church planting has to bring the Word of God into language intelligible 
to God's people. In the directory for public worship that the Westminster Assembly also put together, they take that in an interesting direction with respect to preaching in that they talk about preaching that must make the message clear and must anticipate and answer doubts that may arise in the minds of hearers. They're thinking about preaching in in a sense, in an apologetic context, a missiological context. And they say, if people may doubt what you're teaching them from Scripture because they think some other Scripture contradicts it, you need to resolve that. If they may doubt it because it seems irrational to them, you need to answer that. If they may doubt it because they're prejudiced against it, you need to answer their prejudice. So that's a that's a methodological uh, consideration, especially as we're planting churches in new communities to anticipate where our hearers are going to have problems. They go on to talk in the Shorter Catechism about the means of grace, and that's obviously crucial. The Word, the sacraments, and the Shorter Catechism in 88 includes prayer as the way in which God meets with and communicates his grace to his people. And then go on to talk about, in the next one, about preaching as the primary means uh, by which the, the Spirit convicts and converts sinners and then builds us up. So the Word is absolutely central. And when we take the confession's lead that the Bible must be normative, and we ask then the New Testament in particular, this era that we're looking at, that we're living in, how we should plant churches, look at the book of Acts, for example, you find that centrality of the word very much emphasized. Acts 1.1, of course, looks back to the gospel and describes what Jesus began to do and teach. By implication, Jesus will continue to do and teach now as the ascended Lord through the power of the Spirit and the church. And so you have the Word is very central. Luke will sum up the growth of the church in various regions as the growth of the Word. The Word increased, Acts 6, 7, uh, Acts 12, 24, Acts 19, verse 20. The, the Word grows. And of course, so much of Acts is about preaching, and we have these sample sermons throughout. Interesting, the sample sermons, as we would expect, come from ordained, designated, called heralds of the Word, primarily the apostles. But there's also that clue that the the witness of the Word goes out in the good news telling of other believers, as we would expect from the day of Pentecost when the Spirit falls on the whole assembled group that include not only the apostles who've been praying for the Spirit, but along with them, as we see in Acts one fourteen, the women and others. So it was the whole church waiting for the Spirit. The Spirit came and they spoke the word, the mighty deeds of God in the languages of the nations. And then we see later on men like Stephen and Philip who are ordained to an office of mercy ministry, but also with a very powerful word witness. And then after Stephen's death in particular, just before we read about Philip's witness in Samaria and to the Ethiopian, we read this interesting summary that after Stephen's martyrdom, they were all scattered from Jerusalem except the apostles. And as they were scattered, they told the good news of the word they told about Jesus. So there's a place for ordinary believers to articulate their faith in the model that we're being given. There's a centrality to the ordained word ministers, but there's also a, a place for others. Interestingly, the Heidelberg Catechism hints at that in, uh, in its answer to the question, why are we called Christians? Because it teaches all of us that because we are united to Christ and share in his anointing, we are anointed to confess his name. And it cites there, and Ursinus in his commentary actually make some comment on this. It it cites uh, the the verse in Matthew 10 where Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father. Whoever denies me, I will deny before my Father. And and clearly Jesus is speaking there not just of our saying a confession in a worship service, but expressing our confession in a venue where we might be tempted to be silent. That is out in the marketplace, out in the world, as we see uh, taking place in the book of Acts as well. So, And that's another point I think I would make, that uh, the pattern that Scripture shows us is that that 
the word is conveyed not only in corporate worship services, but it's conveyed where non-believers can hear it and, uh, and brought to them as well. The word gives rise to the community of faith. And so you find in Acts 2.42, after Pentecost, this community now gathered, baptized in the name of Jesus, in the name of the triune God, uh, gathering and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, again, centrality of the word, the fellowship, that is, sharing their material resources with others in need within the church, the breaking of the bread, I believe, is a reference to the Lord's Supper and to the prayers. And, and this, there's an attractiveness about this community that we see in the following chapters because there's a, a dynamic of love that can't be explained in merely human terms, the spirits at work changing hearts through the Word. And you see that then as the gospel goes out, that there's a sense of the unity of the church. When the gospel goes to Samaria through Philip's preaching, the church hears about it and sends apostles up to Samaria, Peter and John go and verify, bear witness to the fact that God is including a new group into the community. And uh, later on, the same thing takes place with respect to the conversion of the Gentiles. Peter is present when God pours out his spirit. And so you have that sense of the unity of the church, the government of the church. As new churches are planted, as we read in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, uh, you find them appointing elders in every church, so there's government there. You find the unity expressed in Acts 15, when the church at Antioch has disputes over the requiring requirement of circumcision uh, on the Gentile believers, and the issue is brought to a council of apostles and elders in Jerusalem. It's very interesting that from that point on, after the decision is made that the Gentiles must not be required to receive circumcision in order to be received into the church, that answer is given not just to the church at Antioch, it is given to them, but then in the 16th chapter, as Paul and Silas go out, they deliver that message elsewhere. So you have that sense of the unity of the church. As new churches are planted, there's a a sense of the decisions that have been reached through the examination of Scripture and the application of Scripture to particular issues that have a bearing uh, far and wide. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And our last call comes from Joel in Colorado Springs. Do you think that there is a connection between one's understanding of the church's relationship to culture and one's understanding of how we ought to worship? Thanks, Joel. And here to answer that question is Dr. W. Robert Godfrey, President and Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California. I think Joel has asked a fascinating question. It seems to me it's a complicated, extremely complicated question, a fascinating one, an important one. Uh, Of course, whenever you intrude the word culture into a conversation, you're already opening a a huge can of worms as to what we mean by culture and particularly how the church participates and should participate in the culture or probably better cultures that surround it. Certainly in America, it's rather difficult to talk about a single culture, but culture comes to expression in so many different forms in terms of different demographics, different geography, different uh, ideology. But to try to get at, I think, what he's after is how does the worship of the church reflect the culture, connect with the culture, and perhaps try to change the culture? That, too, is not a quick question. The church is inevitably cultural. Mankind is culture-bound. We can't ever think of being able to stand outside of culture. Our language is cultural. Our ways of thinking have been conditioned to one extent or another by culture. The key question, it seems to me, that a lot of worship issues revolve around is whether the culture, as it comes to us, as we receive it as Christians and our churches receive it, for example, 
in America in 2011 is is neutral and therefore kind of automatically usable by us. It seems to me a lot of the proponents of contemporary worship have, in fact, operated from a perspective that culture's kind of neutral. Uh, there are bad things in it, of course, but the, the basic culture, uh, certainly the, the musical productions of our culture are usable in a kind of neutral way to advance the cause of Christ and to engage people. At this point, the church connects worship with evangelism. That kind of argument has a has a great initial appeal to Christians who want to see the church successful evangelistically, want to see the church connecting with people in our time. I think ultimately it's a very dangerous path to pursue because I don't believe culture is neutral. I myself a Kyperian on this matter, but where Kyperians and Reformed Two Kingdom people would certainly agree is that culture is not religiously neutral. Culture has a religious character to it. And we have to think very carefully about how we allow the religious reality of culture to affect us. Now, of course, the automatic answer to that is not that uh, hymns written in the 1950s or in the 1880s or even in the 1740s solve that problem uh, for us. They don't. The one, one advantage of tunes that have stood the test of time is that usually they're a little better because uh, there's been a winnowing process over time and tunes have that are really bad from 1740 have by and large disappeared from our world. Maybe that's overly optimistic on my part. But uh, I do think that a perception of culture and the church's connection and involvement with culture is going to determine uh, aspects of worship. And um, I think the critical thing for the church to make this a quicker answer, is to stand back and ask, have we really tried to understand the religious character of the culture that surrounds us and the ways in which it may and may not be able to advance the cause of biblical Christian worship? Thanks, Bob. And thanks to professors Brian Estelle, Mike Horton, David Vendrunen, and Dennis Johnson for playing along on this episode of Ask the Profs. If you benefit from Office Hours, please let others know about the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. You can like the show directly on our page at wscal.edu slash office hours. And you can also leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.